This is the right direction where we talk to professional storytellers and writers and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, AG McDonald, and let's get started with the show. Okay, we are here today with Dan Hanks, who is the author of Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I want to say, this is not going to sound like a compliment to start with, but trust me, it is. (laughs) I actually haven't finished the book yet. And let me tell you why that's a good thing. Um, I was about halfway through it last night and I sort of thought to myself, you know, do you rush through to the end in order to, in order to have read the whole book um, for this interview. And then I was thought, I actually really don't want to, cause I'm enjoying it that much. It'd be a shame to spoil that last half by rushing through it. So I'm kind of like taking my time and savoring it. So uh, it, it's really good. Oh, thank you very much. Well, look, um, I've been told uh, a friend of mine said he read the prologue and then he fell asleep. Um, <laughs> and he, he did caveat that with it was one o'clock in the morning and he was pretty tired. Um, and then my brother uh, and his his uh, wife, my sister-in-law, are on a, a little holiday at the moment and they took a picture of them reading the book and then my brother took another picture of my sister-in-law fast asleep. <laughs> and, and so, like, so you maybe needed that confidence boost at this point. <laughs> I did. Thank you very much. I'm just glad you didn't fall asleep during it. Um, no, no. But, well, uh, I was, I was obviously keeping myself up to read it, but I thought, no, enjoy it. And I thought it doesn't really matter because beyond halfway is kind of in spoiler territory anyway. So we shouldn't be talking about it anyway. Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm very grateful to hear that. Thank you. So I guess we could start off by you explaining exactly what Captain Moxley is about. Right. Um, well, it's a bit of a pulp action adventure um, kind of story with a former pilot who's extremely um, world weary. And we, uh, we first meet her at the end or towards the end of the Second World War. Um, and then we skip forward a few years and she's been working with this mysterious uh, and shady government organization and she's left on bad terms um, and she thinks they've kidnapped her sister and has to go and rescue her sister and this artifact and she ends up being drawn into a chase to find the uh, fabled Hall of Records, which is uh, supposedly an outpost of Atlantis. And um, yeah, I it's... <laughs> It's just it's just one of these um, hopefully uh, pulpy escapist reads that everyone needs in the year of chaos twenty twenty. Oh, absolutely! And I actually I have a friend, one of my online friends. Um, <clears throat> she was saying that she just wants to read now, like to check out because she's yeah. read critically for so long. She's like, I just want to read a book that's just checking out. That's just pure entertainment and it's just having fun and, and kicking back and enjoying yourself. And I was like, well, have I got a book for you? Um, <laughs> so she hasn't read it yet. So I don't know if she fell asleep, but she, yeah. I'm sure she'll love it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes. It, it, um, I certainly didn't expect it to be uh, the kind of book that was this much needed this year. Um, no, I don't uh, think anyone could have foreseen that. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I mean, I really love, I, I really love the dramatic, you know, stories that pull you in and, and rip your heart out. And this year I'm like, nah. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll keep it nice and light and, and fun. No, well, I think you, you made an excellent choice there. Um, so 
what exactly sort of inspired you in the first place to create this kind of like pulp fiction story? Because it's not something that we see a lot of people sort of gravitating towards. No. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, I'm unashamedly copying Indiana Jones, quite frankly. Um, and it was actually born out of, of Indy because um, I walked out, of Indiana Jones 4 and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, which was very disappointing for me having grown up with the first three and uh, you know, studying archeology span because of them. I just absolutely love those movies. I love the character um, and I love that sort of fun and, and frenetic action adventure, um, Saturday morning serial kind of uh, movie. And I walked out of that fourth one, I was like, no, I just, it didn't sit right with me. And I'd been thinking about trying to write screenplays because um, I'd written a book and it hadn't really gone anywhere. And I was thinking of trying something different. So I basically just sat down and, and, and started handwriting and then typing up at night some uh, a script for what would become uh, my version of Indiana Jones 5. Um, just as a bit of fun and perhaps a bit of therapy to work through how I felt about what they'd done with the story and the characters and what I think could be done next. Um, and it actually turned out all right. Um, but obviously, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas didn't want to hear from me. So <laughs> <laughs> I basically just, I, I took this script that, you know, was the first script I'd ever written, but it was actually not too bad. And I, I started working on it and changing the characters and changing the story a bit and, and just evolving it. And, um, and, and it sort of grew from there. And then when I got my agent, Sarah, um, I actually sold a different book with her um, that didn't actually end up going anywhere. And this, I had this on the back burner and I just said to, said to her, should I just write this one? And I wrote the first quarter of it, I think, and sent it to her and she was like, yeah, no, give me the rest. So it, yeah, it, it went from there. And see, I always find that fascinating because like just about every person I've had on this, this show has had a story like that where they had a vision of where they were going to go with a particular book or, you know, the trajectory of their writing career. And it just takes this sidestep and becomes something completely different. Like almost everyone has that story. Yeah. It's um, it, it is, it is true. There's no one path to publication. We all have variants on it. There are all different obstacles. Um, and this, you know, I, I sold a different book that then, for one reason or another, didn't end up being published. And this was the, this couldn't have been a better debut for me in the end. So it's worked out really well. But it's, yeah, everyone has a different journey. Yeah, no, of course. Um, just before I actually got on to this, um, to do this interview with you, I saw that... Um, you had a statement about fan fiction and how you think fan fiction is necessary. And obviously that comes from the fact of this started out as Indiana Jones fan fiction, which to be fair, like the final product doesn't entirely feel like Indiana Jones. It feels a little bit more um, grown up. It's slightly more violent. It's got a little bit more swearing in it, um, which is to say that it has some swearing. Um, so it doesn't exactly feel like Indiana Jones because obviously through that process, it's gone on to take on its own, um, yeah. you know, themes and presence. But what do you say to the people who say that you shouldn't 
like do fan fiction and it's disrespectful to the original creators oh god um if anyone did any fan fiction of of captain moxley and to be fair one of my friends has done a very short very brilliant story um that kind of made me both hate her and want to hire her to write the sequels (laughs) so i don't don't have to um i would be honored and i can't imagine there are many creators who would be well maybe there are but i i can't imagine too many people who would be too precious over their work to uh not love people diving into that universe and and playing with it Um, see i think i think there are some i think i remember george rr martin is not a huge fan of um, fan fiction uh, for right. that reason. Um, he's just like, write your own stuff. Um, but to me, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, that it's like for people to love your stuff as, as much as they do, to turn around and make a story based on that, that just shows how much they love the characters and stuff that you've done. So I'm like, it just, to me, that would say that you've done a good job. Well, exactly. And, you know, you put this this work in and you create these characters and then you put it out there and the audiences, you know, they take that story and they run with it and it becomes their own. So they know these characters possibly sometimes better than you might in the end. Yeah. Um, and and I found that while that piece I wrote on, on fan fiction, it sort of only occurred to me afterwards because I didn't really like, I didn't really think of myself as writing fan fiction. I was just writing Indiana Jones 5 you know, because I had that kind of <laughs> stupid ego, um, egotistical, e- egotistical trip um, of thinking, yeah, I can do that. Um, but I, you just end up, you know, you know it so deeply. And if, especially if you've grown up with these characters in these movies and the beats and the structure and the tone, and it's just, you know, every part of it. So that when you sit down and write, it's a really good learning process for understanding how these things are put together. So if you want to write an Indiana Jones type movie, you know, watch it a few times and then, and then try and write it and you'll actually find it, it comes through you um, and you're not trying to create new characters. You understand how the characters think and how they talk and how they react with one another. And it's just, it's more than anything, it's a really good learning process for how to write in these genres. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, Maybe not explicitly, but I think just about everyone does go through that process, whether you call it fan fiction or not. Because as you say, you didn't think of it as fan fiction yourself um, in the beginning. But like I think of the novel that I have written, though it ends up completely different to the source material, when I initially set out, and this was when I was very, very young, um, I loved the Final Fantasy video games and I was like, I don't see any books that have that kind of storytelling. And so I just set out to make a book that was like this video game that I love. And, you know, that was what started the whole thing. Now, it was not fan fiction. It wasn't those specific characters, but it was trying to emulate that thing that I loved. And I think that's true of all artists, like whether you be painting or, you know, whether you be creating music or or anything, any kind of creation, you kind of emulate your idols until you find your own voice. So I think it's kind of a natural part of, of developing your voice as an artist or an author or anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great way of looking at it. And it is, I mean, you are inspired by these people and we all end up inspiring others or being inspired by them. And, you know, we may not consider ourselves to be emulating them, but I think we all are at, at some level. Um, 
but you know there's no harm in it i don't think there's any fresh ideas as the saying goes just new ways of telling them well that's right and 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 sometimes even if you can see the clear um inspiration and even if it's very obvious what they're trying to emulate that doesn't necessarily take away from it being a good or bad thing like if you take joker for example that was clearly inspired by taxi driver like that majorly inspired by taxi driver but it didn't stop it from being an awesome movie yeah that's uh sadly <laughs> with two young kids that's one i haven't caught up with yet okay but, well uh, eventually uh, get to it because it's good <laughs> Yes, no, I'm going to have to. I absolutely love the trailer, so uh, I, I will do. But um, yeah, the, and I think I, it was um, the fan fiction piece was uh, tied in. I, I wrote something else about Cobra Kai as well, and it was just about taking these, and, and Cobra Kai is, I guess you could argue, is fan fiction on the Karate Kid in in a kind of weird way. But what they've done is they've taken characters that everyone knows and loves and and tried to do something slightly new with it but the tone and the the feeling the cheesy 80s factor is still there so yeah it's a really interesting thing i mean i wrote a few hundred words on it but to be honest you could probably do a phd on it (laughs) well to be honest i think that's the model for every hollywood um, intellectual property ever at the moment is to bring back the characters that you know and love and Um, although to be fair most of the time it's to do the exact same thing yeah, well, that's the problem. <laughs> and I think that maybe where Indiana Jones went wrong, and I, I believe Star Wars went wrong. I haven't listened to your podcast on um, the Star Wars and how how you could fix the sequels, but I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, well, that yeah that came out today, and that'll be um that'll be an interesting discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but see, like to me, I haven't seen it in the longest time, but I didn't have an issue with the fourth Indiana Jones movie. But to me, like, I can understand why people did because it kind of went in a different direction. But to me, some of the criticisms that people had were kind of like, have you seen Indiana Jones? It's like when they turned (laughs) around and said, you know, it's so ridiculous and the action's over the top. And it's, I'm like, that's the point of it all. (laughs) But I understand that going like that aliens angle and stuff like that might not have gelled with with everyone. So. Well, for me, and this is the weird thing, because for me, I love the the fridge bit. I love the aliens bit. Um, it was really the execution of certain moments uh, and the tone and using John Hurt in the, you know, just being so wasteful with a, an actor of that caliber. Because um, when, he, when he was announced as being in, in Indiana Jones, I was like, oh my God, you know, what are they going to do with him? And then they did nothing with him. And it was just, it was just stuff like that. So the story, I didn't have a problem with, to be honest, but, and I have since made my peace with the fact that the first half is actually very enjoyable. Um, well, are, are you, are you, well, they also had Kate Blanchett and I feel like she didn't really do that much. She, she got to hammered up a bit, which was nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she, she went off the boil a bit later as well. So yeah, um, it was just a bit disappointing. Yeah. So I guess, it's interesting because there's kind of a a gap in the market for these kind of pulp fictiony books. Um, but when you look at a lot of the major franchises at the moment in film, they're kind of all based on pulp fiction storytelling. Like Marvel movies are based on comic books, which are, which is like 
the the most basic form of pulp fiction storytelling then you've got you know star wars was created because of you know the flash gordon serials and and stuff like that like it was created out of these like pulp fictiony stories and so was indiana jones and like so much of what people love now and respect for their storytelling abilities are based on a lot of these like pulp fictiony stories so i feel like there's a huge market there of people who would be interested in these like over the top like actiony based kind of entertainment stories um but i don't see them very often no well the the person i saw doing them um, although they weren't, I, I don't know if you'd argue they were, they were pulp. Um, but Matthew Riley, obviously the brilliant Australian author, um, I absolutely devoured his books, um, you know, way back when. And the way he was able to get the film playing in your head as you read and you forgot you were reading, you were just living the movie in your head was something I hadn't really experienced a lot before. So I tried to pull out some of that aspect and some of that sort of uh, popcorn blockbuster uh, movie in your head aspect of, of this and mixed it with the, the pulp, but you're absolutely right. We don't see it. We see a lot of it on film, um, but I don't see many books other than um, uh, Stephen Sador, S.A. Sador, and his um, Fury from the Tomb, um, also an angry robot book, um, and The Beast from Nightfall Lodge, I think, is the sequel. And those are both absolutely fantastic. So well, I'm going to have to check them out now. <laughs> yeah, you, you really should. So, And uh, my cover artist, Dan Strange, also did those covers. Which and, it is a beautiful... <coughs> sorry. Which it is a beautiful cover. It's, yeah, it's a, a dream an absolute dream this cover and it it Uh, really just perfectly captures that that you know vintage like pulp fictiony vibe i just i love it and even even like the size of the book like i don't know if it's made in different sizes but even the size of the book is like that kind of book that you would find that was made you know 40 years ago and yeah i just i just love every part of it (laughs) Yeah, look, I've got a copy sitting here, sitting here in case I had to refer to it for any reason. And it is, I couldn't have hoped for a better, a better book cover. And anyone who knows me knows that as long as I've been writing, it was always something I desperately wanted to one day have a book with this kind of cover. Um, so for it to be my debut and for it to be this good looking, I'm just you know blown away. I mean, the artist Dan Strange is magnificent. No, it was a terrific job. Um, I guess one of the things that you can do with a, a pulp fiction title like that is to be crazy and out there and, and, you know, have all of these weird and wonderful things, which you have in here. Um, but you kind of go a step further than, than a lot of those other books in that you seem to have a lot of knowledge. And I think you said before that you, you are interested in archaeology because of Indiana Jones. So you had that knowledge beforehand. Did you use the knowledge that you had before in this book or did you actively go out and do lots of research on the, the places and the, the history of the places that, that they travel to? Um, I, it's a strange one because I studied archaeology. I got 
a couple of degrees in it and almost went on to do my PhD, but um, didn't get funding, which led me into basically just mucking about in different jobs for a few years. Um, but while I was doing, while I was doing my studying, I was always gravitating towards the, the fringe elements. Um, so, you know, the Atlantis flood myths, um, uh, my, you know, the, the PhD I was going to do hopefully was, um, catastrophe in the early bronze age near East and looking at sort of migration patterns and, and, you know, how, certain events might have led to the evidence that we can see in the, in the record today. So I had a, I had a lot of background about that and I, I'd been heavily into Atlantis since Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis, uh, point and click adventure game, which is still one of the best games ever. Um, and so I, I'd done a lot of research anyway, um, not all to do with my studies, but there was a lot of archeological theory in there as well. But then it was only lately in the, in the last few years, listening to different people on Twitter, you know, much smarter people than, than me, talk about the idea of colonialism and, and how archeology span is rooted in, in that. And it made me see everything I'd studied in a different light. So it was quite important to me to, to go into this book and not tell a story about people going around the world stealing artifacts and not really thinking much about it, but actually raising that as a discussion point and having it as a conflict between the two lead characters who are sisters and, and see things very differently. So yeah, there was, um, there was a lot of, of background research I already knew, um, but a lot of it was, uh, was paying attention to people talking about that aspect um, and how we're viewing it more in, in, in today's era. Yeah, and well, that's something that I was going to say, and it's it's sort of tricky when you're talking about these things because I'm like, I don't want to go past a certain point because I don't want to say anything that's not meant to be said or if it's a spoiler, but that was one thing I thought was really interesting because in all of these stories, whether it be, you know, Indiana Jones or what I would equate to the most popular female Indiana Jones figure, which is Lara Croft, mm. basically the same story, um, yeah. Although completely different to Captain Captain Moxley, like very different. Um, but anyway, the um, the thing with Indiana Jones and Tomb Raider, and and even that terrible what was it called, Relic Hunter, the TV show. I don't know if oh, you yeah. saw that one. Yeah. It, was <laughs> yeah. not, it was not great. <laughs> um, but even with all of these, that aspect is never explored. Even in the modern Tomb Raiders and stuff like that, that aspect of you're taking things from other people's cultures has never been explored. So I liked that it, this brought a different take. So even though it's sort of paying tribute to these older themes and these older archetypes, it's kind of adding a, a modern slant on it. Yeah. Well, look, I wanted to capture the, the spirit and tone and fun of those, those old, old films and TV shows. Um, but I guess I'm lucky in that, you know, with a, with a film or, I guess to a lesser extent with the TV show, but especially with the films, there's only so much you can talk about and people don't go to uh, a Tomb Raider or an Indiana Jones to get 20 minutes of, you know, discussion about colonialism and archeology span in the middle of it. <laughs> Whereas in this book, I have the time and space to be able to explore it more fully. Um, so that was, that was certainly a lot more fun to, to play about with because that in the original script, that wasn't as, um, as prevalent. 
So I guess one thing I was going to ask you was you'd sort of spoke a little bit about the process of creating these stories and how it kind of was inspired by wanting to write your own Indiana Jones story. But when it comes to that basic level of creating a, a story, do you do any prep work beforehand to plan the story or is it that you take an idea from real history and kind of expand upon that? Or do you see a character like what part comes to you first in the story? Oh, um, it changes. Um, so yeah, it, with everything I've written, I've, it's always been done slightly differently. I think I'm finding my feet now, but I've, I've just basically tried different things. And with this one, it was, very strangely it just came out um so i would sit on the train from uh, I, I was living in warunga just north of sydney and traveling 45 minutes on the train to winyard um and i'd sit there and maybe write scribble a couple of pages um and i i'd made it up as i went really but saying that harking back to the the fan fiction thing i wasn't because i knew the structure i knew there would be this opening scene full of action and you know it sort of triggers the main event and then maybe there's a bit of a chase and then then you have your exploration of what the the story is about and you know this what the stakes are um and then you have maybe a couple of couple more set pieces and so I was hitting these beats as I was writing them and it with this book and it's only ever happened with this one it was it was a case of just feeling my way through it um and it's sort of coming out quite naturally the i'm working on a couple of things at the moment and one of them i like to plot out the structure because i like to have a fairly decent first draft at, at the end of writing it um so i can't um meander my way through it i need a fairly decent skeleton in place and then i'll meander my way through between the bits between the bones if you like um, so it does change. Um, and I'm working on a second project at the moment, which is, um, really full on planning and plotting and getting approvals for it and making sure everyone's on board with everything that's happening, um, before I even start writing. So it's, I've tried it, I've tried a bit of everything, but with this book, especially it, it was, it was born out of the fact I knew how these stories should be told and it came out kind of naturally. And yeah. I knew I wanted I knew I wanted to talk about Atlantis and the Hall of Records, so I knew that much. Yeah, well, it, it definitely hits all of those beats, but it hits them in a natural way. But I just, I had to ask that because I find it fascinating hearing about different people's approaches because like when I write things, it's only me. So like I see it as like, that's the way it gets done. But obviously every single person works in a different way. And I started um, co-writing a book with another author, RK Gold. And mm. he, he, I was going through it with him and showing him everything that I do. And like for, for planning, I create, I think it was about seven to 10,000 words, this, this document with every little facet that you could possibly think of in the story before yeah. I've even written it. And I think he was like, like he plans beforehand too, but he was just like, this is a huge amount of work, but I just, to me, I have to get everything down pat before it goes on the page, just so that then I'm not like, okay, now I've got to go back and rewrite this entire beginning of the story because the story's changed. So like, that's how it works yeah. for me, but I find it interesting how other people work 
in completely different ways. When you start writing, though, do you refer back to that document or is it already in your head and now you've, you've written it, you understand it, you can start at, writing? As I keep going with that document, it can change from time to time, but really it's just cementing it in my brain because I don't yeah. typically go back and check it. Yeah. And do you often ever go on a tangent and, and go, oh, crap, I've, <laughs> I've ruined everything? Um, no, because I, I sort of, I know what beats they have to hit. So like, mm. I know that it's got to be, and that's, that's the point, I guess, too, with a lot of discovery writing, you could write yourself into a corner and say, okay, well, I've got to backtrack five chapters now. Like, whereas with this way, yeah. it's like, I know what my end goal is for each scene. Yeah. I know what my end goal is for each thing. So it's like, it's very focused. Yeah. Cause yeah, otherwise I probably would end up writing you know, 200,000 words and then get nowhere at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I like having a, I like having it mapped out to a certain extent because it's nice to know. It's nice to be able to picture where you're going. I think um, I do like the idea of discovery writing and certainly with this book, it worked out, but I can't imagine I'd ever get that lucky again. Well, I think for some people, when you say about um, planning, um, versus discovery writing. Some people say that it kills the creativity, but to me, I'm like, I don't know, to me, it, it keeps the creativity going because I know that I'm not going to back myself into a corner and get writer's block. So I yeah. guess, yeah, it just comes down to what we said before that it's just everyone, same as publishing, writing's the same. You know, everyone has a different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think to get a coherent plot um, and to have good cause and effects it's nice to have it plotted out in your head at least um, before you start seeing what the characters make of it. Um, I have had moments where characters do something completely unpredictable and it is weird because you hear writers talk about this and then you go, that doesn't really happen. But then, then it does. And you're like, Holy, you know, Holy crap. They've, they've gone and done it. And now I've got to write it differently. Um, But at least it doesn't go off piece too much. Um, so I guess moving from that planning stage and talking about um, the publishing side of things, I asked Chris Panettiere the same question, um, but how long would you say it was from the initial conception of the idea for Captain Moxley and when it was actually published? Okay, well, if we're talking the script, that was 2008. So that's a long time ago. Um, The book I started writing... um, uh, Right, so end of 2018, I think. Um, And that was... My other deal fell through and I was at a loss. And I thought, well, I've got this script, so it'll you know, it won't be as hard to write a book out of that. I can probably do it that in, in a few months. So I started writing, I think, end of 2018, turning the script into this book. Um, I probably wrote it in six months, I think, and got it to Sarah, my agent, who had a look at it. We worked on it a bit. And then I think in maybe August or July or August, it went out on submission um and then it was maybe four months before i i got the offer from angry robot um so it and and when angry robot made the offer they were um they said immediately you know it would be published within a year so 
which is I felt quite unusual for publishing because I always hear it takes a lot longer than that. Yeah, that and, was quite- and I guess that's part of it too. Is you know we hear all the time these these numbers that get thrown at us like, oh, you'll have to do this for 10 years before you get published and you'll have to do this. But so many people don't have that experience. Like some people it takes longer, some people it's shorter. And it's the same thing that I think they're like, as much as people want to throw numbers about how long you've got to do something that it just, there is no one way to do it. And there's there's no one answer for how something gets done. Like some people, it might only take a year. Some people it might make, might take 20 for them to finally get published. So it's, it's just yeah. completely well, different I'm, for each person. I'm very much that latter. Um, Cause I started writing properly, you know, 2002, I started my first book. Um, and it was a case of uh, finishing that, trying to query it, dropping off, doing other stuff. And that's kind of why I tried script writing because I got a little bit disillusioned with publishing um, until I realized just how many people in Hollywood could get in my way between me, my script and a film. And I thought actually publishing is not that hard. <laughs> I was going to say publishing books doesn't have anywhere near as many um, gatekeepers as um, Hollywood does. Exactly. Yeah. So I like thought, so- sometimes, oh, some, sometimes even if you're like actively involved in creating the movie, you still have roadblocks put up and you can't like, you know, there'll be that many people that, that write a movie or direct a movie and then, it comes out later that they're like, I wasn't happy with the final product because of corporate interference and stuff like that. So you might be better off with books. (laughs) Well, I I think so. I mean, I was very lucky to work with a a local producer um, with, uh, uh, with him on, on the captain Moxley script for a while. And we kind of almost got funding and, and didn't quite make it over the line. And then things happened and then things didn't happen. And, and it was, it's a, you know, it's a fun process. I, I would love to still, you know, pursue that. And, you know, I've got the film rights for Captain Moxley. So, you know, maybe we'll still keep working on that. Um, but it is, it, it, it is a whole different process to publishing. And it made me realize that actually publishing is about, you do need that aspect of luck. But um, if you keep working at it and, keep, and don't give up and, and keep pursuing it and you will finally write something that's good that finds the right home at the right time. And um, it, is, it, it is, I think, probably a little bit easier um, to deal with than, than trying to get a movie made. Oh, I think it'd be so much easier. I mean, I've done neither. So you know, I, I can't speak from experience, but it, it, I'm sure it would be so much easier than, than getting a movie produced, I feel like. And especially the movie that you wanted to get produced. But I guess yeah. if you were trying to make a Captain Moxley movie, you've kind mm. of got a little bit of, of leeway there because I could picture it being like a high budget Indiana Jones kind of style movie but I could also picture it being a lower budget um, movie that kind of plays on that, that Pulp Fiction TV serial kind of look and feel. So like it could go either way. Yeah. Um, So I'm available for all budgets. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's interested. Um, If anyone wants to call in. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, we had a lot of that in the eighties where you had your, you had your Star Wars, but then you had your Battlestar Galactica, you had Battle Beyond the Stars, you know, all those other slightly less budget um, offshoots. And, you know, and they were to me just as much fun. 
Um, and with Indiana Jones, you probably didn't have quite as many, but I still loved the Alan Quartermain um, with Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone. And was it High Road to China with Tom Selleck, I think? Yeah, um, and, those movies, and those movies weren't at the Steven Spielberg level, but they were still great fun when you're a kid. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't care either way. <laughs> it's just, it would be nice to see it on the screen and, and have a bit of fun with it. But it is one of these things that I think you can still have fun with it, even if it isn't a big blockbusting, you know, budget. No. And to be honest, especially if you were involved in it, you would probably have more fun because there wouldn't be as many roadblocks and gatekeepers trying to, you know, meddle with the, the story that you've created. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I you hear stories, don't you, where even the best, brightest writers have people coming up to them and, and saying, you know, what if we set this Indiana Jones in space or something ridiculous like that? And yeah. they go, and you're like, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there are, there are always obstacles like that for, for everyone in that process. Just because I guess everyone in, in, in the process of making a movie wants to offer their their opinion and they might have different opinions on what what's going to sell what's going to work you know this might work great in space it might not but you know well i think um, um producers are kind of like fans like when you see things like indiana jones and star wars and you know everyone's got an idea about their their story that would have been so much better than the latest installment and you listen to their story and you're like, yeah, you don't get how storytelling works like in your head. That's a great idea. But when you commit that to paper, that, that idea is not going to work. Yeah. Well, we are all guilty of that at some point. Um, we are. In my, in my case, it turned out okay, but. Um, in your I'll, case, you did know what you were talking about. So it was all good. Well, I, to a certain extent, I've, I've de- like you said, I've gone a slightly different direction with it, but um which was kind of nice to be able to play with that and twist it and build on it and, and develop it as I went. So uh, it started out like that anyway. You know, there's obviously a lot that's sort of left. Uh, I leave a few loose ends throughout the book, shall we say. Um, and people do keep bringing up the ideas of prequels and sequels. And um, I, I'm interested to see if you bring this up in your Star Wars podcast, because one of the issues I had with that was that it's strange because I would have thought they'd have sat down and worked out an overarching story for the Oh, three we movies. talk about this. We yeah. talk about it. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to that. But one of the things I thought I'd do with this, because I, I do have an idea in my head, but it's not concrete. And so I thought it'd be fun to leave myself little JJ Abrahams. Um, I can't remember what they're called, but you know. Uh, mystery boxes. Mystery boxes, that's it. Um, so I've left plenty of those throughout this that I would be happy to pick up and play with, you know, either in a, uh, a place that's set before this book or after this book. Um, and that's been quite fun. And I think most people have reacted well to that, but I think some people have also gone, yeah, I would have liked that answered. <laughs> so it's, it's quite difficult to, to write this kind of thing. Cause I always pictured it as, as being a longer story. Um, and there's certainly more tales to tell without, you know, going into what happens at the end. Um, but it's, it's trying to write a story like this, that's a standalone with serious potential is always quite interesting. And I, I did have to go down. So I see why JJ Abrams loves the mystery box route basically, because it's quite useful. But I think, um, 
I think it's good to leave certain things open anyway, because I feel like sometimes, and actually, do you know what? This can come back to Star Wars because as I've said before in, on this podcast, I've said, I, there's nothing that I can't make about Star Wars. So <laughs> um, in our Star Wars discussion, we were talking about the rise of Skywalker and how it's, ability to constant i'm sorry have you seen it i have i've yes yeah yes. no that's okay um i thought i don't want to go into stuff you know and spoil <laughs> it for you but um but in its in its ability to constantly answer every question it removes any tension so it's like sometimes mm. you should not answer the questions and leave some things hanging up in the air like its problem was the fact that it had moments of tension and it had big questions and it had all these other things. And then it would immediately answer them in the next scene. It's like, um, Hey, I blew up the ship and that had Chewie on it, but it's okay. Cause in the next scene, Chewie's not dead. And it's like, yeah, but you've, that was pointless because you've just like, there was no point yeah. to that. Or C3PO's had his memory wiped and 20 minutes later, it's back. It's like, there were no consequences because you were constantly answering questions. Yeah. And tying up loose ends. So like you can tie everything up too much. Well, see, that's, I mean, that's the trick, isn't it? Because, I mean, especially with that movie, <laughs> it's coming at the end of 40 years worth of of hopes and dreams and, and us knowing these characters and having our own ideas about where it could go. Um, and obviously, The the Last Jedi was very divisive and and, um, and the, the Force Awakens seemed to hit the spirit without getting the story that everyone wanted. So there was a lot you know, everyone was in a different place when they went in to see this movie and he was trying to cater to everyone and, you know, maybe he shouldn't have done that. I, I personally, in, I, it was the first Star Wars I got to take my kids to because they were finally old enough um, and we all had a ball, but you're right. <laughs> it's, it, oh, look, the, the thing, when I went and saw it, I wasn't one of those people that saw it in theatres and was like, oh, I hate this movie, this is terrible. Like it was a, it was an enjoyable movie to sit and watch. Like I wasn't able to blink for two and a half hours. Cause like it yeah. didn't give you a chance to breathe. Exactly, um, yeah. But you know, I enjoyed the movie and actually that's one thing I will say coming back to Captain Moxley is you do manage to have those moments in the story too. Like, whereas if you compare it to something that is a bit, um, a bit more very plot based, something like Dan Brown, Dan Brown just like is plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point. Whereas you do have those scenes where they take a moment, they breathe, they can start to explore what has just happened and then they move on to the next point. So you, did, you didn't have that Rise of Skywalker pacing issues, which was really good. But um, I didn't have any issue with the Rise of Skywalker when I was seeing it. But um, it's kind of one of those things that like, as I step back and look at it, the cracks are yeah. definitely there. Like I'm not, it, it didn't ruin my childhood or anything, but I'm, I just, <laughs> the, the cracks are there. Yeah, I think we all, I mean, I certainly felt like that with the prequels because I went to each and every one and loved them. And then it was, I, I thought about them and I stepped back and I rewatched them when they came out on DVD or, you know, VHS or whatever it was back then. And um, and then I was like, yeah, no, not not quite. And obviously Lord of the Rings came out at the same time, which was seemed to me to be a far superior storytelling or at least execution of, of the storytelling. Um, so it's difficult and because Star Wars is so built up in all our all our minds and our lives, um, it's it was something that it was almost an impossible task, wasn't it? So um, it was tricky. Luckily, in my book, I am not tying up the end of a 40 year saga. So <laughs> I could 
I could piss about in the middle if I wanted to and have the characters just have a chat, which was lovely. Yeah, well, there you go. Maybe, maybe in 40 years' time, you might be facing the same <laughs> predicament. No, I will tie it up way before then. Don't worry. Well, I guess, I guess that's the thing, though, that it's, it's a series that kind of has unlimited potential because even if you were tired of Captain Moxley and you're like, I have done everything I can possibly do with this character, you know, there could be another character that appears in there that could have their own story that starts shooting off from that. Like there's, it does have that unlimited franchise potential. Yeah. I mean, I'd really, people keep bringing up the nine, the agency in this book and um, agent Taylor, who's uh, sort of the chief bad guy with a, with kind of a conscience. And I would love to do more with him because exploring that, you know, he thinks he's doing good and we kind of see that in the modern world where these people are doing heinous things, but you can see that actually they think they're doing a good thing for the world. Um, and he is that kind of shady character who might just, you know, think he's doing good for the world and he just has to do bad things to get to that stage. So it would be interesting to, to play with his character a bit um, in some form. Well, it'd be interesting because you could almost do two series parallel to one another and have like the opposite side of the story to to like flesh them out. And, but I mean, they'd have to be standalones because you, you couldn't have them dependent on one another, but it'd be interesting to see if it was, you know, the same story, but told from opposite sides in two different books. Oh, that's (laughs) that funnily enough, that was the first book I ever wrote. So I did this big epic fantasy and I thought I'm going to do a trilogy from three different points of view about the same set of events. Um, and I thought I, I did the first book and then I thought, no, this is way too hard. But an agent, a literary agent actually quite liked the idea. And she sent me a book called An Instance of the Finger Post, which is kind of the same thing, but within one book. And it's like a murder mystery. And it's a, it's a brilliant book if you like that kind of opposite, you know, viewpoints on the same um same scenario story um which is which is fantastic but yeah you could do that that here um i would have to keep it separate because it's way too complicated otherwise (laughs) but i guess the thing that the thing that would make it interesting is if you were having even if it's just a reference to a character that has appeared it doesn't have to be the same events um Mm. is you could have two independent stories that if you read either of them you would get what's going on but then you could have a twist in there based on these characters and how they behave in both the books that once you've read both, it's like this earth earth shattering change of perception for the characters. And like, you you could, you could do a lot with it. Yeah. Oh, look, there's, it's, it's so much fun and there are so many different avenues I could explore with it that, um, you know, fingers crossed. I I get to do that. I, I mean, I was thinking of maybe tinkering with one or two short stories set in this universe anyway so that would be fun to play with but you know releasing a book in uh in 2020 with a, a second lockdown in the uk probably imminent um everything's gone online which is great but it means people aren't walking into bookstores and and, and browsing and seeing this kind of cover on the on the shelves so there's a lot up in the air at the moment but if i get the chance to write more i will absolutely love it so uh fingers crossed and I guess, I guess that brings um, another issue at the moment of 
sort of how how do you deal with that at the moment? Because obviously going through a traditional public publisher who creates a lot of physical books and digital books as well. But as you say, people aren't going into these bookstores anymore. Um, you know, what measures, I mean, if any, are you taking at the moment to try and combat that? Um, I'm spending every day on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> well, cause that's something that I am terrible at. And, and the thing is like this, um, manuscript that I have that is basically done. It's just going through an editor at the moment. I'm kind of like, Oh, what do I do with it? Like, do I try to go a traditional route? Do you go the indie route? Like, you know, I, I don't know what to do with it at the moment, but I, the, the more I think about it, I'm like, if I go the indie route, I've got to know how to use social media. And I am terrible with social media. Like I will not go on there for ages and then I'll go on and then I'll see people are complaining over something useless, like, you know, dog earring pages in books. And I'm like, why am I on here? And then I leave for another you know, <laughs> couple of weeks. Like I'm terrible yeah. at, at social media. So that's probably something that I need to work on. It's, it's a, well, first of all, Angry Robot have been brilliant throughout the whole process uh, and they've had to deal with a lot themselves, obviously being quite a small publisher in lockdown with the industry sort of not knowing what to do, especially in the early months. Um, and they were magnificent at a time when they were giving um, authors like me and Chris Panettiere um, our edits back and then saying, you know, here's your cover and and finalising everything um, before things went to print. Um, so they were they were fantastic and they really held our hand throughout the process and they've been brilliant with publicity. Um, you know, it's not quite been the in-store book launches that we all sort of dream about, but they have got us guest posts. They, they um, set up the online launch for us. And then Chris set one up in, in Texas and, and they are just, you know, they're very supportive. And if I had gone down an indie route, which plenty of my friends have done and they've done really quite well with it. And, but like you're saying, there's so much more to it and I wouldn't be very good at a lot of those aspects of it. And, I'm very grateful that I have angry robot behind me to, to sort of guide me through that. One of the places I am quite comfortable with is, is Twitter because the writing community there is, is just fantastic. And to be honest, that's where I first came across um, Sarah Megibo, my agent and, and followed her and sort of got to know the kinds of clients that she had. And I started reviewing her clients books for a blog called fantasy faction and that's how I got to sort of meet her and interview her for the, for the, um, for the blog. And then we just developed a relationship that way. Uh, she would send me her clients books to, to review if I was interested. Um, and then eventually I had this idea for a book and I talked about it with her and got to send it to her and that's how she signed me up. So Twitter for me has been brilliant for that kind of thing. I totally understand people logging on and seeing the absolute chaos on there and thinking, nope, and logging back out again, I can, you know, we all see it every day and it's, it's something I've learned to tune out a bit. Um, but the rest of the social media stuff is, is quite tricky. And I think going the indie route, I think you really have to know what you're doing, or at least you'll soon find out how to do it properly because it must yeah, be a kind of a sink or swim thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think to be honest, both indie and traditional at the moment are trying to do many different things um, to, to, to get through this process because obviously everything's changed and it's up in the air. Um, 
for everyone. But, you know, we're all going through it at, at the same time and we're doing different things with it. But it is a case of learning new avenues to contact people and, and get the message out about, about the book and, you know, and, and seeing what takes and, and what doesn't. Uh, and paying close attention to your author central page on Amazon and see, seeing the numbers come in. Yeah. No, well, it's, it's definitely a different um, market, but look, I, I, I agree with you on um, that social media front. Like as much as I try to tune out the people that are just looking for attention and, and try to find different people to talk to. And, and in reality, running this podcast, like I would not have been able to talk to incredible people like you and Chris Panettiere and Sarah Epstein. And like, I wouldn't have known any of these people and had the chance to talk to them if it wasn't for social media. So obviously we, there are so many perks about the age that we live in now too. Like a lot of basically everything that I'm currently doing now would never have happened beforehand. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful how it, it can enhance our, you know, our, our processes to, to doing these things. And there is so much awfulness there as well. Um, obviously, but it's, it's trying to steer clear of that and, and concentrate on the positives really. Yeah. Um, isn't always possible, but you know, we try. But I guess the other thing is um, when we were talking about gatekeepers, gatekeepers in publishing, gatekeepers in movie making and stuff like that with social media, you're able to, for the first time circumvent, some of those gatekeepers to get your own stuff done. Yeah. What in terms of indie? Well, in terms of anything, in terms of indie, in terms of traditional, because like typically, you know, back in the day, um, you would have just sent your work off to an agent, but now, you know, you were able to build a professional relationship with this agent and then contact the agent and say, Oh, well, are you interested in this? Or, you know, the same with, publishers and and all these there's there's such a greater access to all of these people that there's there's just different avenues that you can use like some people i i don't know if you heard the episode that i had with sarah epstein but she talked about the fact that she had a big new york agent and they kept saying well why don't you just write this story here that we've got for you why don't you do this and she just said no and she left and i think it was because it was up on her website um her book idea a publisher actually came to her and said we, we want to have a look at your story. So, you know, she didn't have to go through a particular route and yeah, I just think it's interesting that with social media, so many people can, can go, there's just, it's just completely opened up the amount of ways that you can, you can get what you want to create things. It's look, it's a a great way to network. Um, And I definitely advise doing it on a silent basis first. So you just listen um and see what agents are talking about um learn what they're looking for see what kind of books are selling at the moment um and just sort of pay attention to the industry that way and it is absolutely fantastic it's such a great resource for learning about this because obviously before this like you say it was sending your sending a printed letter cover letter and your manuscript off and then either getting a a rejection or you know or a partial or a, or a full. And, and now you can sort of, and that was your sort of dealing with, with publishing. And now you can watch it <laughs> unfold. Yeah, and, and, and they can get to know you as a human being rather than just a name that submitted a story yeah. or something like they can get to know you and your personality gradually over time. And um, yeah. And I think you're right too that. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I think I step back sometimes is so many people 
are very focused on themselves. So the, the idea is, Hey, I'm going to go and spam every agent on social media with, with messages. And it's like, don't do that. That's, that's not going to end well. Yeah, no, don't do that. (laughs) Listen, listen and listen and look. um, Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's terrific advice. Yeah. Well, on the um, subject of social media, where can people go to find you? Obviously you say that you're on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. Um, So I am Dan underscore Hanks, I think. I should know that, shouldn't I? (laughs) Probably if you're always on Twitter. (laughs) Yes. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm Dan underscore Hanks. Um, you can find me at my website, which is just danhanks.com. Um, and yeah, those are, I'm on Instagram as well, but don't expect anything phenomenal there because I'm still, I still don't really get Instagram. I don't get uh, it. I don't understand no, it. My, my wife has set up a, a lovely new business, um, selling some great, uh, dog toys and, and products and, and things. And she set up this fabulous Instagram page and she's like racked up, I don't know, nearly 2000 followers. And I just, I'm in awe because I, I don't know what I'm doing there. I don't feel like I should be taking pictures of stuff. Um, and it just, it just seems very odd. So if you see me on there, I'm probably struggling um, to understand it. That's right. And I, I don't completely get it. I don't know why you can't share stuff on, on Instagram. Cause I would love to be able to share all these great images and, but maybe I'm not using it right. I don't know. Well, I'm sure you're, you're really wrong. talking to the wrong person about Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. I think I, I know less than you. Hopefully someone will comment and go, actually, you, you, you know, you can do yeah. it properly. Yes. Yeah. Someone, someone call in and, um, and tell us how to use Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be lovely. Thank you.